There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Living Room Logic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode where we're going to have a really interesting conversation today. And it is about COVID-19 again. But I think one thing that's really interesting and one thing that we can all share about COVID-19 is that throughout the pandemic, one of the hardest things to work with has been the uncertainty and the being unsure of what is to come. And that's what makes today's conversation with Professor Carl Walsh so interesting, because it's his job in part to contribute to forecasting what may happen. Professor Carl Walsh is the Chair of Statistics in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics in the University of Limerick, and he's a member of the Irish Epidemiological Modelling Advisory Group to NEFET. It's part of his job to help produce these models, which NEFET base some of their recommendations on. Would that be correct to say? Yeah, that's that's fair. So they're a tool uh, in terms of um, planning, I guess, uh, anticipating what might happen and uh, and 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 when. So brilliant. So the the first thing, just to kind of give us an overview, is could you describe in general or give us an idea about what exactly a model is and what the goal of modeling is? Sure. So I mean, there's there's a one could take a a big step back and and talk about mathematical modeling in, sure. in general, uh, and it's used in all sorts of walks of life, everything from engineering and uh, industry, process control, for example, uh, through then to the particular area of disease modeling, which has been mm. uh, my area of, of work really for certainly the last uh, 15 to 20, 20 years. Wow. Um, and the in, in particular in disease modeling, one may be interested in everything from the progression of a chronic condition, for example, one, one could be interested in uh, arthritis or multiple cirrhosis, uh, or infectious diseases. And uh, of course, COVID is uh, an infectious uh, disease. But similar models are, are used for flu and for uh, HPV and for um, uh, hepatitis and so on. And they're used in a, a number of different ways at present. Obviously, we're trying to say something about the trajectory in, in terms of number of cases, look at possible interventions. So they could include things like um, vaccination tr and treatments. And, and, and we can say something about the likely impact of those on the pandemic itself. So that's really interesting that you went into so much detail with the modelling and that there's such a history of research and literature around not just infectious diseases, but also the pathogenesis of different diseases. And what I guess I'm wondering right now is how much detail do you actually get into the modeling? Because it's so complicated. You can't possibly predict everything. Like you can predict things like maybe the severity of the virus or maybe its incubation time. Maybe you can take estimates of vaccination status. But when you're looking at things like people's social behavior, is that worked in? I guess I'm the, the only other thing I'm wondering is, is this something which is in the literature or is it the, something that the team puts together? Yeah, so it's um, 
I suppose you see there are different levels of, of model and, and a good analogy is with something like um, fluid flow or, or, you know, weather prediction. There's mm-hmm. One may have a, a quantity such as temperature, which is essentially an average value representing the amount of energy, I guess, in the air and the environment. Uh, and for when we're doing disease modeling, we were concerned with average levels of transmission. So even though one won't have enough information to be able to say exactly who will interact with whom, one can say something about the average level of transmission in the population. Mm, So each of us, if you like, has our own um, value of or, or our value beta, which is to do with the, how transmissible each of us is. Mm -hmm. But what really matters is the average across the population. Uh, And we know, and we've known for, from quite early on that there are some cases where a large number of individuals are infected and there's other situations where no one seems to be infected and and in fact you know it is the case that the vast majority of people won't infect others but occasionally you get this these very large outbreaks there are other forms of modeling as well and one of the models that we use is something called an agent-based simulation and that does go into some detail about interactions between people and people of different types and so on. The age cohort model as well is is somewhere between the agent-based simulation and the SCI or population level model. And that allows for different mixing patterns in different age groups and then mixing between the different age groups. So so there are different levels of sophistication of the models. Um, At the the top level, the population average one, while it's not realistic, gives us certainly reasonable, very very good predictions um, for for the level of sophistication of the, the model itself. In terms of estimating the parameters, um, yes, so there's a lot of work goes into that. And, and, and some of them, I, I, certainly at the very early stages, that we, we didn't know anything about, you know, when people yeah. became infectious. We didn't know how long it was from exposure to um, when someone is infectious to when someone develops symptoms and so on and how long the disease would, would last. Um, but over time, and with a bit of observation, we started to come up with estimates of, of those quantities. Um, mm-hmm. even, even now with new variants, it, it, you know, it's very difficult to, to know what those parameters are. Uh, and so in some of our scenarios, so for example, the relative transmissibility, we, we run different scenarios with different estimates of, of relative um, transmissibility. And each of those then results in a trajectory or a curve. And very much it's, un, it's unknown as, as new variants arise. But over time, we do get to discover uh, what, what those quantities are. So really the the, the level of detail that's needed for the population level models uh, isn't as much. It's, it's really about the population average um, okay. behavior than the, the micro interactions that, um, that, that different people get up to. Um, the other side of it, of course, as well is, and I know, you know people often ask, well, how do, you, how do you say how effective masks are and so on? Mm. The, the only bit that matters is that it, it affects the transmissibility. And so there's a, there might be a reduction in overall average transmissibility when an intervention like that is, is put in place. But because of the way in which interventions are introduced, often we can't separate out the effect of the different, uh, different interventions. So a lot of these are still unknown, uh, if you like. But we do have enough experience to, to say that as a package, the measures yeah. that were implemented does have an impact on on transmission of the virus. Cool. So you can kind of like retrospectively look back and see how effective different groups of restrictions may be. I'm just kind of curious, uh, do you have any examples of some of the parameters that are actually put into the model? Yeah, so the I mean, the, the key parameter is this um, beta parameter, and people might have heard of the OR number, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that is the transmission of, of, of the virus. 
uh, across the population. Uh, there are other quantities in the in the models, and you know, one of the challenging ones really is this clinical fraction, which some people refer to as the documented fraction. So that we know, and at present, we've got a lot of pressure on the PCR testing system. But even when we don't have pressure on the PCR te- testing system, we know that we don't detect every infection that occurs, uh, and 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 so this this fraction. Matters, and the reason it matters a lot is because when people are infected, gradually, what happens with uh, any epidemic, you can see this exponential growth at the beginning. But mm-hmm. as people become infected and are removed from the population or become immune, then the virus can't transmit anymore on that population. So the total number of individuals who have had the infection matters quite a lot. And, yeah. and we're not able to directly observe that. But we have done studies called serology studies, where we've looked at the population, a sample of the population after the first wave. And we noticed that, you know, we were really only detecting one in three. We were only documenting about one in three infections. Um, as as registered cases for the first wave. Mm-hmm. And at present, and, and when testing is under a lot of pressure, then it falls back to around those those levels, you know, so about a third of, of, of cases or so, perhaps a quarter of cases are detected. But when when we have in peacetime, if you like, so, so earlier in the autumn, perhaps, uh, we, we probably were detecting 50 to 60% of infections. And that's a parameter that really matters and that yeah. people can relate to as well. And so those key ones are transmission, how transmissible is the virus, and then the other one being the um, clinical fraction, documented fraction, uh, and that has an impact on the trajectory of the uh, epidemic. So, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it's it's interesting because my next question was actually, is there any parameters that you don't have that you think would be very useful? And I'm assuming that's probably the biggest one. Yeah, that is the one that, that really that, that we'd like to get a better handle on it. And the only way mm. to do it uh, is to do those um, uh, uh, serology studies. Uh, and that's that's complicated now as well because uh, we know that the new the uh, Omicron variant is quite transmissible is mm-hmm. a, is the first uh, observation, and the other is that it evades uh, the immune protection. So whether that's been from vaccination or whether it's been from prior exposure to disease, uh, and so if someone has previously had you know alpha, delta, or the the um, wild type of the virus they can still get Omicron again. And, and, and so our serology studies tell us about the proportion of people that have been infected, but won't distinguish between the, the variants. Um, okay. and, and so to know how many people are susceptible to Omicron would be very useful. Uh, and that's a very difficult thing for us to, to ascertain. But we do know something about the rate of spread on the population. So we can say something then about the likely fraction um, that has mm. been infected uh, um, historically, and that tells us something about the the rate at which the virus will spread in the in the population. So initially, a naive population, the virus spreads really quickly, but as people get more and more people have been infected, it slows down, and, and that's how epidemics die out. So it's not necessary that everyone will have got it, uh, got the virus, but a sufficient number will have got it so that it doesn't spread across the population anymore. Okay, and in the in the models that are put out there, there is the downward push. And is that because of things like the projected impact of vaccination as well as the infected community? So is like vaccination put into it as well? Because I think I was reading in the CMO's latest letter that there was, I think there was an assumption that we would have something like 50% of adults at least boosted by the second week of February, something like that. And is that is that a part of what is what is predicted to push it down? Yeah, it is. It is indeed. Yeah. So so the, the effect of, of vaccination uh, and uh, it's not, I mean, it's, 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 I think people are starting to become aware 
that vaccines um, work in in different ways. Mm -hmm. The key benefit of vaccination is that it, it allows the body to get used to the pathogen and so that the body can tackle it if you're exposed uh, to the virus subsequently so that people don't get as sick at once they're vaccinated. Mm -hmm. The other thing that, that vaccines do, and they do it to different extents, is to prevent transmission. And unfortunately, we see that the Omicron variant is readily transmissible even in a vaccinated population, but the benefit of vaccination to the to, to the host to the person is strong in preventing more severe illness the impact then in terms of the modeling um is this it enters the model in two places so it enters in terms of the transmission and that will have an impact on the number of cases so even though it's not perfect in terms of preventing transmission it does reduce the rate at which um the virus is transmitted and so that has this downward force on the number of cases uh, and the second place it comes in is in that link between cases and hospitalizations and um severe more severe outcomes uh in it be it icu or mortality okay and that's that's really interesting as well and one thing uh and just i i we, we we briefly touched on it already but i'm trying to get a measure of how the impact of the restrictions are put in and is that kind of put into the modeling so i i, I know in the in the latest modeling it was shown along the lines of if socialization decreases 10% or increases 10%. And is that consistent throughout? So the modeling assumes that these restrictions, or perhaps the people who put in place the restrictions are saying, we think that this might have a 10% reduction, and we're hoping to get that to hit one of these output scenarios from the modeling? Yeah. So I, you know, ideally, what one would like to be able to do is to say um, that we know such and such an intervention will reduce transmission by this amount. Mm. In practice, we we don't. Yeah. We don't we don't know. And and it's something that at the start of the pandemic, certainly last um last spring, um uh twenty twenty, it seems seems so long, but so 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 reasons in some ways, um, is that we were trying to unpick and say, well, how effective are, are these interventions? Mm -hmm. Now, we know that the total separation of people, so the effectively what was termed lockdowns, yeah. we always knew that that would have a very strong effect, yeah. but the problem is getting back out of it yeah. uh, and figuring out how, how is the virus transmitted and what settings are going to be safe and what settings are less safe. But in terms of the modeling, all it all it impacts on is this level of transmission. So there's transmissibility, so there's beta, yeah. if you like, or this effective OR number. Uh, so as we bring in restrictions, we're reducing the effective OR number or reducing transmissibility or transmission. And um, to what extent? We don't know. And that's why we, we run different scenarios. If we had an increased transmission, if we had reduced socialization, this is the trajectory that the uh, epidemic would, would follow. So really, you know, we don't, and, and I know that can be frustrating for mm. people we don't we don't have you know a definite amount that masks cut transmission by or that social distancing cuts transmission by um all that matters is the value that's used for transmission yeah. uh, and, and 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 that fits into the uh into the into the model now the, it, we do explicitly put in uh the impact of interventions into the agent-based tax simulation mm -hmm but not into the population level or the age cohort um, models. It's really only the, the the level of transmission that matters. And we shift that and, you know, we kind of say, well, you know, if we were to increase transmission, what kind of trajectory would the, would the um, epidemic follow? Uh, and you can see historically as well, you can see that sometimes the trajectory of the pandemic follows some particular model scenarios. Um, and sometimes, it, you know, sometimes it doesn't. And there's some scenarios where it doesn't track them at all. Um, uh, when we look back over time, 
Uh, and sometimes it's after the fact we kind of say, oh yeah, okay, so track this. Good, exa- I mean, a good example of it was this um, question around the relative transmissibility of different age in different age groups, um, and we ran different scenarios where the um, virus was more transmissible and less transmissible among children versus adults, and the data tracked a trajectory where it was slightly less transmissible uh, among among children, less transmissible than adults, but as we know, Delta among Everyone yeah. was much more transmissible, uh, and so the transmissibility among children was more than alpha was uh, and the wild type was yeah. uh, among adults. But it was still there. Still is that age gradient, and in fact, we're, we're seeing what what happened was that we noticed that because there was vaccination in people over twelve, that there was a reduction in transmission in those age groups, and the highest transmission were among the uh, 10, 11 year olds. Uh, but there was a gradient then with other ages, and um, because. Uh, the new variant evades immune protection. What we're seeing is that age gradient coming back again. Okay. So the numbers in children relative to adults are, is, is in fact, they're falling. Uh, and the reason for that is that, that, that no one really has protection uh, to the extent that they did previously. And so we're, we're, we're rediscovering that age gradient. So whereas people might say, oh, well, it's the school that out or whatever, you know, um, it, 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 we expect that with a new variant that uh, evades immunity mm. uh, just to, 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 re-see, to see that uh, age gradient occurring um, once again. Yeah, I think it, I, I, I get where you're, where you're coming from, but I, I, it is very understandable for people to be concerned. Like I, I think of all the cohorts of people to be concerned, parents are probably the number one. And I, I, I think it, it is fair enough for them to be very concerned. Uh, I think you also kind of bring up something that I've been trying to communicate as well, where if we have a variant that's four times more transmissible, it kind of says that our restrictions in the past might be four times less effective on yep. preventing transmission, which is another, you know, complicated thing, because even though we are in so much a better place than we were 12 months ago, infinitely better, we still have some restrictions. And it's not really a result of the vaccines or anything like that, but it's more so a result of the new variant and it being more transmissible. So obviously um, you have an impossible job. Obviously, if you're trying to predict the future based on any amount of data, you're going to get stuck. And I think a lot of the time what I've been reading is that and what I'm understanding from speaking to you is you're projecting scenarios based on values. And you're saying if this virus has this much immune escape, this could happen. If it has this much immune escape, this could happen. And you can even see in the other models, they assumed that it had the same severity as Delta because we didn't have the information at the time. And we're kind of seeing that Omicron is maybe less severe, but maybe too soon to say that for sure. But it's definitely trending that way. And I, I, I get the scenarios that you're putting forward, but I, I'm not sure if it's been very well communicated because I think a lot of the way it's been communicated is this is what will happen. It's like, this is exactly what will happen. But what, what you're saying is in this exact scenario, this is what would happen. There are a lot of comments and discourse around it. But what I'm wondering is, since these are the scenarios and they're not uh, they're not going out into the future and you don't have a crystal ball. I'm wondering how much it is these scenarios are used to I- influence decisions that are being made. And I'm wondering if this difference between producing a possible scenario 
and predicting the future is maybe in part miscommunicated to the public, but this is not something which is miscommunicated to government, and they're very much aware of it when making these decisions. Yeah, so I think you're, I think you're, I think you're right to to highlight that. Uh, I mean, you've, what you've made quite clear is that these are these are projections, if you like, or scenarios. They're not um, predictions as such. And and um, and now, if we put in the right parameters, if we have to, you know, get the right parameter set. Yeah, they are essentially predictions, um, but but in practice they're not. The other the other the other aspect that you're you're highlighting there is that it may change behaviour, and therefore we don't end up in a position um, where we you know where we where we don't mm-hmm. want to be. Um, but but using these tools alerts us to the fact that this is coming. And in the case of the uh, Omicron wave, we could see it. We could see it happening in in yeah. the UK. We were alerted very early. So back at Back at the end of November, late November, we we had a, a, we became aware of this um, variant. And indeed, in terms of severity, the emerging evidence, in fact, is that it, it is possibly around 20 to 25 percent less mm-hmm. severe. So it's not much yeah. less severe. But what we have is an experienced population. So the impact at a population level, uh, on average, if you like, could be a little bit yeah. less. But because of the massive number of cases, we're, we're quite concerned that that yeah. will make a, that will make a difference. But when we ran the the models, and it was a it was a stark realization that oh my goodness, this this these are going these could be very yeah. big numbers that we're we're looking at. And um, but it allowed us to do things like to share with colleagues within the HBSC so that we could plan r- work rotas and we could plan uh, for people to be available if needed. People could recognize that this was going to come at us and um it has um uh, and 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 it is it is disconcerting when we see numbers increase like that but we are aware you know so the the, the models allow mm-hmm. us to say where are we tracking yeah. what are we tracking well this is you know that this is not entirely un, um unexpected you know so um uh, it's a bit, it gives us a, a reassurance, if you like, that that uh, this has been considered, this has been factored in. Uh, we we saw the action that was taken by government early on to um, to perhaps try and slow down the spread yeah. somewhat, uh, and also the discourse that's there from the CMO and minister um, today, highlighting that this is quite concerning. That numbers are going high, and it's tracking. Um, at a high level on the scenarios that were fitted. But we do have, it's like having a, a map of the terrain. So it allows us to find our way through what otherwise might have led us to become extremely concerned and panicked, if you like. But we we, we, we fitted the model. Now, when we first saw yeah. the models, it's like it's like first seeing the models in, in March of last year. Um, I remember it was, it was yeah. February. So I, I gave a talk at the uh, um, uh, RCSI. Uh, we're hosting the Sphere Conference, gave a talk there. Um, and from the discussion there with other public health um, uh, people, and we had a conference in Limerick. So then, public health actually were all out at the conference because it was a, it was around um, social determinants of, okay, of healthcare. Yeah. Uh, I, I ran my own models, and you could see straight off, you could see the curve going up. Like, wow, that looks like it could it could be a, it could have a yeah. major impact. Uh, and it was about two weeks after that that we shut that we we ended up um, uh, shutting down because we had the you know the first cases in that, uh, and um, and that the modelling work took off really um with with groups from across the across the country so it was um a very fast reaction time but we have in in ireland we were lucky to have a network that we were able to connect up people quite mm-hmm. quickly uh, and so we had people in, involved in statistics and math math modeling and computer science getting together 
with a, a lot of very good um, epidemiology coming from, in particular, uh, uh, experts in, in veterinary medicine, which is okay. uh, in veterinary medicine, they're quite used to, to dealing with uh, epidemics, in fact, you yeah, know, so um, uh, from a from a planning from a planning point of view. So their expertise is is very good that way. Uh, and, and we're able to. And, and so it's from like those in the veterinary school who were able to uh, contribute to our estimation of the parameters. So they, they knew what parameters we needed to find out and and we're able to get through the evidence and um, identify you know yeah. sensible values for those um, parameters in fact it was a miss it was a miscalculation of the um of the serial interval in the uk that led them to delay opening up uh so they do they they, they, they misjudged it a little bit and mm-hmm. so uh it, it took off more quickly than they'd um okay. realized uh, and they should have locked down earlier, but they didn't. Yeah. Uh, and so that was so it was it, it's mistakes in estimation of the parameters that can, um, you know, that, that will have that impact because they, they didn't recognize that it was going to take off quite as quickly as this as it did there. Of course. And I, I think going back to like, I, it's totally understandable how these small differences that can't be foreseen can kind of come in and make the models harder to communicate for sure. And especially kind of saying that. The, the model that you're putting out, it could be two weeks later and one of the scenarios is immediately off the board. It's yeah. you, you learn something and immediately this isn't the one. And it's very tricky to do that. And I it just going back is this is communicated. Maybe this is miscommunicated. And I hope the people listening to this maybe get a stronger grasp of it. But it is clearly communicated to government and things like that. They're, they're gone through the modeling. I'm sure they're sick to death with these kind of meetings i'm sure i imagine they are i, I wouldn't yeah <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to suggest too much but yeah i mean look it can be it can yeah. be um i think it can be difficult to see sometimes to see these these really big curves um uh, and, yeah. and 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 then kind of trying to 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 say well you know where do you get where are you getting this number from um uh, yeah. but there have been a number of occasions where you know we we had projections that that went quite high and they and they haven't materialized um we've had other cases where uh, as as we have now where um the reality is is tracking at the higher at the higher end if you like of of of, yeah. of some of our um scenarios so um but but they're there as a, a, a they're there as a tool to sort of yeah. to, to facilitate discussion really and consideration of of um of, of what might lie ahead uh if for example, we do nothing, and then of course, when we do something, and and then the the high scenario doesn't materialize, people say, "Well, oh yeah, we locked down too soon." You know, we didn't have to lock down. Of course, um, um, but there is that there is that dynamic uh, that that goes on uh, goes on there, um, and and of course, people it, it, people involved in the modeling don't have a vested interest in making stuff look bad. I mean, of you know, course, we're, yeah. we're 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 trying to get a handle on on what's happening uh, as well, and and. Um, and seeing us before it arrives is is one thing. Um, trying to communicate it then sometimes, if you're the bearer of bad news, is a difficult uh, a difficult ask. Um, uh, and and so that so that discussion generally wouldn't happen so much within the the group. So the group involved in yeah. doing the modeling work uh, aren't at the table with decision makers so much. Um, uh, okay. I mean that's done by the the CMO and um, by others. And the group, perhaps the chair of the group, of and 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 that communicated to the um, to the decision makers. Okay, 
that makes perfect sense. And, and I totally get that. And the, the last thing I want to ask you about is, as far as I can tell, and you, please tell me if I'm wrong, but it's much easier to model now, maybe, because you have a history of data to kind of calibrate the model that you're going with. But also, it might be easier to model into the short term as opposed to the long term. So you might be able to better predict what happens tomorrow rather than in a month. So uh, I'm kind of wondering, because I've seen seen a few people talk about this, but would there be any downside to updating these models or releasing them more frequently and kind of saying, we are seeing this, so this is the expected change, or maybe to kind of guide people into what they're expecting? Because I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty and people are really holding on to anything any any solid piece of information and i i of course i know that the scenarios and the models aren't promises they're not at all of what will happen they're just under these circumstances but even just guidance of saying we're leaning more towards this scenario at this point perhaps beyond it perhaps adjusting it so is there is there any downside to releasing perhaps updated models as time um, goes so I, I i i hear what you're saying and, and you're you're quite right to to highlight and that's you know typical of any modeling actually this um there's and and uh it's true for you know weather forecasts it's true for for for, for many other models that um the near predictions tend to be easier than the, the longer term um predictions mm-hmm. now what i would say though is that it, it, it when you get high levels of transmission it, it is actually fairly um uh, that curve is 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 much more predictable than when you get low levels of transmission because there's a there's more randomness when you have low levels of transmission than when you have this very high rates of transmission that we're we're seeing at present. And um, we could, you're right, we could update those models, but uh, I mean that comes at a uh, as as a as a cost, and the majority of people involved uh, in the work uh, are working in universities, for example, and that's you know that's that 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 that's who's funding us and 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 the funding doesn't yeah, come to um to the to, to the model so there still is we still have property you know other jobs as well you know okay so yeah okay. there is I the you, um yeah. there is that cost in terms of people's time is one one aspect yeah and um, of course it, it, it also often while it can tell us where what trajectory we're gonna see uh, in the near future unless we're informing or we're, we're gonna make a decision then that in itself isn't useful um and that's a hard thing that's a hard thing i know to, to recognize it's a bit like um uh it's like any test you know any testing or any uh um projection or any uh, um diagnosis mm. that that's unless you can act unless you can do something it, really that information is just inf- you know it's just information and you might want to know it and you might want to find out but unless it's going to influence yeah. how you're going to act then it, it isn't it isn't that it isn't that useful so so the, the, those two, those are the two aspects. One, there is a cost associated with um, updating models, and the second is this: um, unless it's going to inf- impact on a decision that we're going to make, then it's not as useful to to, to have the models. That said, there's there are a lot of very good people uh, on, you know, who are tra- who are tracking what's happening uh, and have summarized. Mm-hmm. Our models and taking our models and plotted the data onto the onto the projections, if you like, and that can provide a lot of mm. um, useful information for those who are interested in 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 um, finding out more or hearing more. Uh, I think I think some people are just sick of hearing numbers, you know. So, uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> so maybe we yeah. maybe not everyone wants to to hear more numbers or yeah, more projections. Yeah. 
But there are. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. One. Maybe once the wave is over, just release a model showing a hard downward turn, and everyone will love. Yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, (laughs) I mean, the letter to the C. I think the letter from the CMO to the minister, and uh, it it does that. It does provide us with that that people can go and um, uh, look at that letter, letter, and and see what the rationale is. And uh, uh, but it's there. You know, you have to click on the links. You have to go off and find it. We're not. It's not in people's faces. Um, So that we're not. uh, You know, I, I think people are. Uh, as, as kind of sick of it at, at this stage. Um, yeah. I mean, it has been two years, and and at the start of the um, pandemic, uh, I, I I was asked the question, how long would this be? You know, will the schools stay closed for? And I said, yeah, they, they could. And they said, well, will it be a weeks, six weeks, or a month? I said, well, it could be a year. Yeah. It could easily be two years. Uh, and I think I think yeah. that's a, a reasonable time frame to think of in terms of yeah. the pandemic. What we've seen. With previous waves is that because the population gets more experienced in terms of dealing yeah. with the knowing how to deal with the uh, disease and also because people have been exposed to the disease their immunity is strengthened and um, that with this wave and this is a very challenging wave that's that's coming at, at us and um, but we'd be optimistic that this is you know that this will provide additional um, protection uh, uh, to the population and what we're perceiving as mildness of the illness is because of those two things. There is, a, it is slightly milder, but as I say, perhaps 20, 25% yeah. is the um, yeah. estimate of, of how much milder it is. But because the population has been previously exposed to similar disease and have been vaccinated, yeah. the impact will be less than it would be at the very start of, of the um, pandemic. So that's the optimistic uh, side, not down, um, uh, to downplay, this is going to be quite challenging these next few weeks. Of course, um, but it, you can mm-hmm. see from the from the models how quickly this rise is projected to yeah. to, to occur, uh, but how quickly it comes down again, and, and we've seen that in other countries as well. And, and that yeah. happens, you know. So flattening the curve protects the system, but if the curve isn't flattened yeah. and it's very difficult to, to flatten the Omicron curve, uh, you get this sharp peak and it comes down quicker uh, again. Yeah. So that's the that's the optimistic uh, note. Uh, not to downplay that, yeah. that we are looking at a, a, a of couple of weeks uh, ahead. But two years from when this all started would be March. Uh, and yeah. and so be optimistic that we through this wave, that we'd be in a, a, yeah. a better place. Absolutely. And uh, I, I was speaking to um, uh, Killian de Gascoigne as well, and he was kind of saying the same thing. And he was kind of saying he can't wait to just kick this virus into just another seasonal coronavirus that is just another name yeah. in a list as opposed to something that's consistently. Yeah. Used. And we look, we see and people, we work colleagues in the HPSC with the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, they're dealing with lots of different um, uh, viruses and, and um, of course, uh, you know, conditions. And so you're, you're, you're right, but that's where we're, that's where we're going. Uh, with it and um then you know no one wants to hear from modelers again perhaps but but we'll be there in the background working on the other diseases if we yeah. work on uh, anyway whether it be you know everything from hpv to hepatitis to to pcv to, to lots you know lots of other uh, diseases. of course infectious diseases aren't going no, to disappear no, 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 anytime as long as there's people socializing not, not at all but it does it well, does shine a light you know it does yeah. shine a light on the inequity in the world as well that it does. I mean, malaria, for example, is a is is a, is a is a big killer of a disease, but perhaps we haven't focused yeah. on it because it doesn't affect richer countries to the same extent as it does other True. countries. Yeah, and we and we have seen that a lot with COVID nineteen that it does tend to hit a little harder in p- perhaps richer richer countries with highly dense cities and things like that. And that's that's a good point. 
Thank you so much for your your time and your work. I'm sure it's mostly a thankless job uh, for the most part. And I'm so glad to kind of get an opportunity to speak to you and to kind of ex- get it, make it a little clearer. And I think it will really help everyone who's listening. So thank you so much, Professor Walsh. Well, thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.